Welcome to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel. With me, the ex-Microsoft tech lead, Dr. Tim Scarf, Connor Shorten, and Yannick Kilcher. Today is a special episode. We have Jordan Edwards, Principal Program Manager on the Azure Machine Learning team. Jordan has almost single-handedly transformed the reputation of Azure ML into an enterprise-ready, credible platform for doing machine learning DevOps. DevOps is all about people, process, and platforms to enable continuous delivery of value to your end users. It's about accelerating the velocity of software deployments. It's about taking all of the friction out of the process to help you be more entrepreneurial, to help you fail fast, to create data science labs and environments automatically with infrastructure as code. If you view machine learning as a software engineering discipline, there is a specialization of interests and expertise across the life cycle. There are data scientists, there are engineers, there are ops people, there are governance people. Machine learning is the next generation of software engineering. Now, we shouldn't be hyperbolic about machine learning. It's not really intelligence. It's just a computer program. With ML DevOps, we can treat the machine learning lifecycle exactly the same way as we do for software engineering. But there's a key difference. Machine learning produces a lot more technical debt in production than traditional software. So there's a lot more things we need to do. We need to think about governance at the company level. We need to think about the handshakes between all the different personas in the software engineering lifecycle. We need to think about ethics and fairness. We need to think about machine learning engineering and testing in the interactive phase and the non-interactive phase. Data scientists famously like to work in Jupyter notebooks which is antithetical to software engineering. And for a long time, I thought that the best solution was to get the data scientists to behave like software engineers. I've now been thoroughly disavowed of that persuasion. Figuring out ways to get the various different stakeholders in this process to work together effectively is one of the key challenges of ML DevOps. I really enjoyed talking to Jordan Edwards. A key driver to innovation in machine learning is the velocity of our iteration cycles, autonomy of data scientists, and being able to get models into production. Machine learning is just like software, but it produces more technical debt in production. The models might make important decisions and therefore need to have rigorous testing and governance. ML DevOps is about orchestrating the non-interactive phase of software deployments for machine learning. This is extremely hard to get right because of the different personas involved in the life cycle of model deployments. This is Formula One in the 1950s. As you can see, it was a manual, error-prone process. They were engineers hitting parts of the car with hammers. There was no monitoring, no automation. This is what Formula One looks like today. There are many different types of engineer working together effectively. It's fast, it's continuously monitored and improved. The whole process has been automated and orchestrated. This is machine learning DevOps. ML DevOps is all about increasing the velocity of software deployments. It's about reducing all of the friction out of the process to help people in the organization fail fast, to go from vision to value, and to take exciting ideas around machine learning and get them into production. We've had this horrible problem for years now. It's called data science myopia. And that is that models are created in Jupyter notebooks and they don't go anywhere. And it's impossible to do governance at the company level because there's such a complex interaction between 
all of the specialized roles in the data science process. This is what ML DevOps is for. It's about orchestrating the interactive and the non-interactive phase of software deployments. It's also about testing and monitoring. For example, the data scientist might create interactive explainability tests to understand what the model is doing. A machine learning engineer might create non-interactive semantic tests to test the model behavior. There might also be load tests, integration tests, and so on. One of the other things we look at is Jordan's ML DevOps maturity model. And this is super interesting because I think ML DevOps can become an intellectual exercise and no progress is made. So I think it's really valuable to come up with a maturity model so that in your company, you can have different projects in flight that are at different levels of maturity and that's established. Governance is one of the things that interests me the most. So many models that we put into production may have life-threatening decisions of consequence, in which case we need to have a structured process to decide what kind of explainability we need, whether or not we should use machine learning at all, maybe we need an expert system, and what kind of check-in process should we have throughout the life cycle of a machine learning project. ML DevOps also allows us to have this entrepreneurial fail-fast culture in business. It means that a business person can spin up a data science lab. We can templatize previous solutions that we've already created. We can ingest data from an analytical data store like our data lake, maintaining our role-based access control and all of our data governance procedures. My dream is that people in the business can create a data science lab by saying MLOps in it. They can scaffold the project, they can say, I want to have a structured project. I want to have this kind of production target. I want to have this kind of environment. I want to have this kind of governance process. I want to have this kind of explainability. And we can scaffold that end to end and remove all of the friction out of the process. That's the dream that we want to achieve with ML DevOps. As a researcher, usually whenever I have trained a model that performs really well, my job is done. I'm happy and this is all good. But Jordan's job only starts at that point. He takes these models that researchers produce and tries to get them to production. His team basically does anything that you need to get a machine learning pipeline up, running, reproducible and up to scale to ship it out. How to make machine learning into a real product? That's kind of the topic of our talk today. And I was super excited to learn about a site that I never get to see otherwise. We had Microsoft build a couple of weeks ago as well, and the folks at Microsoft released some pretty interesting stuff relating to machine learning. First of all, they released something called Microsoft Seal. This is something that they've been working on since about 2012. It's all about homomorphic encryption. Seal is an open source homomorphic encryption toolkit allowing machine learning to be performed directly on encrypted data. This means data can be shared and worked on securely by remote data scientists. Microsoft have also released something called FairLearn, which is a set of Python packages for assessing and evaluating and also implementing fairness in your machine learning approaches. FairLearn, a package that empowers developers of AI systems to assess their system's fairness and mitigate any unobserved unfairness issues. Interpret ML is an open source library for creating explainable and fair machine learning models on structured and text data. And finally, Microsoft have released something called White Noise, which is all about differential privacy. White Noise is a toolkit that offers strong privacy assurances, preventing data leaks and re-identification of individuals in a dataset. So White Noise will add 
a little bit of noise to some of your records, which means it will no longer be possible to determine whether a certain record influenced a model, which is super important for privacy. Microsoft announced further work on the Zero Redundancy Optimizer with gradient and activation memory implementations in Zero 2. Microsoft's blog post claimed that this optimization could support training a 200 billion parameter language model. A week later, OpenAI blew the machine learning world out of the water by actually building such a model. Trained with this infrastructure, GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. Microsoft had invested $1 billion into OpenAI last year, and we're starting to see some really cool projects as a result of the collaboration. Only yesterday, GPT-3 was announced by OpenAI. Now, last year, Microsoft put a billion dollars of investment into OpenAI, and this is where some of the money is going. Yannick did a really great video on Deep Speed and Zero Two. It wouldn't have been possible to train this GPT-3 model if it wasn't for the innovations that have come out of Microsoft that have allowed them to train these ridiculously big AI models. So GPT-2 had about 11 billion parameters in, and Microsoft's Project Turing had 17 billion parameters. And this new model has 175 billion parameters. Now, Yannick did a really good video uh, talking through the ins and outs of GPT-3, and admittedly, it's a little bit like a memorization machine. It's an incredibly good hash table that can look up and find all of the bits of text it was trained on, and it can cleverly interpolate between them. It was incredibly expensive to train this thing, but it just goes to show there are some amazing things we can do now, especially using zero-shot, one-shot, and few-shot learning. Additionally, another collaboration with OpenAI showcased the remarkable code completion ability of large language models trained on code, completing functions with just the function name and a doc string as input. Now, we covered a lot of ground with Jordan today. We talked about some of the build announcements. We talked about machine learning being the next generation of software engineering and how we can do things like infrastructure as code to take the friction out of machine learning, how we can do governance at the company level, how we can do automated testing. And also we had some interesting ideas about interpretability and how we should do the handoff between interactive testing and non-interactive testing. I hope you enjoy the episode today. Remember to like, comment and subscribe and we'll see you back next week. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel uh, with me, Tim Scarf, my compadres, Yannick Kilcher, Connor Shorten, and today, we have an incredible guest. We've got Jordan Edwards. I've known Jordan for several years. I used to work with Jordan when I was at Microsoft and he's extremely well thought of inside Microsoft. So I think it's no exaggeration to say that uh, Jordan has pretty much single-handedly <laughs> transformed the uh, perception of Azure Machine Learning into a credible enterprise-ready platform for doing uh, ML DevOps. So uh, it's, it's super cool to have Jordan on with us today. So welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Tim. Awesome. So um, why, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, what you do and, and your story at Microsoft? Sure. So I'm Jordan Edwards. I'm a product manager on the Azure machine learning team, and I work on what we call ML ops, or how do you bring your machine learning workflows to production? 
So a bit of background for me, I started at Microsoft around almost eight years ago now in July. And I started off by working on the Bing platform, doing, you know, distributed systems, application, middleware, business logic tier, things like that. Evolved from that into working on engineering systems. So spent some time as a product manager, some time as a developer. Started working on engineering systems, helped move the Bing organization as well as the office organization over to using Git and using, you know, cloud-based build systems and really introduce the culture of CICD to these ML first organizations. Now, as I was doing that, you know, came to realize that, you know, while this problem has been, well, largely solved or there are tons of tools available for developers, the tooling that's in place for data scientists is much more primitive. And also we find that many data scientists are coming in, uh, have more of a research background and aren't classically trained as software engineers. So the tools are slightly different. You know, they were trained to publish papers and not to write programs. And so as, as part of that, you know, did some more um, investigation, sat with some data scientists inside and outside of Microsoft just to learn their ways of working and started formulating a strategy for, you know, how can we take some of the tooling that we've been building in Azure and in the Bing platform and around the company and bring it together into a cohesive story to enable what we were calling like DevOps for ML AI at the time and then has slowly evolved as the marketing terms have developed into what is, you know, ML ops. And that's uh, been a big, big collaboration across the company. So we've, you know, been working with the Azure data team, the developer tools, developer division, and trying to make sure that we have a cohesive story for how you can wire up your data pipelines, your data catalog, your model development or training pipelines, your model registry, and then your existing uh, you know, software development lifecycle application release management tools. So it's like, how do you really complete the loop? Because the big, the big delta compared to you know, classical software engineering is you bring in data engineers, data scientists, data models, and things get way more complicated really fast. That's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have like an infinite amount of questions. So so first I, I really want to kind of dive into how how it looks because for most people yeah. maybe listening or something like this, like you either have the the university researcher, right, that maybe right. works on on these models and so on, or I'm still going to guess that most data scientists are actually you know doing fairly basic data analysis and so on. So yep. I, I think not many people in the world right now are doing what you're doing, like actually build big products with state-of-the-art kind of machine learning. So how how large is actually the, the machine learning model? What How large of a part of just your effort is that? Or is it like, yeah. is it ma- mainly there's 5% of work going into the actual model and then 95% needs to be built around it or... Right. I, I think it work? really, yeah, it really varies based on the customer and the scenario. So you know, some customers will come to us and say, I have some data and I want to do forecasting on it. Right. And like, I don't have any machine learning data science background, but I have this data that's at least shaped in tabular form. And so how do I, you know, at least, you know, try to get a model out and see if the model's any good embed the model into a business application 
and then figure out, you know, the, the trickiest part is, okay, I've got this model. Unlike normal software, you can't keep a model around forever, right? Like they tend to have some seasonality or properties of decay to them. So like, how do I figure out when I need to create a new model to replace it? So, you know, we come, you know, in all of the talks that I have with big customers, it's like, okay, here are the, you know, here's this process maturity model for the machine learning lifecycle. Here's stages one, two, three, and four. And the usual response I get is like, well, we're at phase zero. Like we have, we have none of this. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of that too comes with, it's not even necessarily the, about the tooling. It's more about the people and the process. And this is, we saw the same thing with DevOps as well, right? Like anybody can go and stitch together open source tools to set up a machine learning platform. But if the process and the people and the roles and responsibilities aren't set up ahead of time, you're just going to end up with what is more or less a disaster where you've got, you know, data scientists have a bunch of like CSVs pulled down onto their laptops. The way they've trained the models, like even they can't figure out how they produced it. They've got a pickle file sitting somewhere and then they go talk to their dev and say, Hey, I've got a model. And they're like, what is this thing? How, how do I use this? So these are the, the sets of problems that we really want to want to go after as much as possible. And so you know, from a like product strategy point of view, the first thing is, okay, let's look at how data scientists are working today. So we have, there's, there's kind of two different schools of data science we've seen. You have the folks who are really big on notebooks and you have the, and those tend to be more of your like researchers doing data science. And then you have, I call them AI developers, but it's basically software engineers who are doing machine learning. And they, t they tend to be more, you know, IDE users. So you've got, your, your notebook users and your IDE users, they have very different styles and ways of working. And so how do you build a solution that can capture and help make the model development process reproducible for both of those flows? So that's sort of the biggest pain point we're trying to go after and tackle right now. That's, that's super interesting. I think yeah. we'll get on to the dichotomy between science yeah. and engineering shortly. The, articulate some of the goals that, that, that I see for ML DevOps. I think it's squarely about seeing machine learning as the next generation of software engineering. So yeah. it's not necessarily about these. There, there are some data scientists that, that are just doing data science on their own machine interactively. Right. We're, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about that road to production. So in my opinion, the goals of ML DevOps is it's about increasing the velocity of software deployments. It's about increasing the quality and security of software, orchestrating the non-interactive phase of software engineering and the handover between the interactive phase right. and the non-interactive phase. It's allowing companies to develop this kind of entrepreneurial culture where they yep. can go from vision to value. They can fail fast we'll talk in a little while about templatizing and being able to use infrastructure as code yeah. and spin mm -hmm. up data science labs and so on it's about introducing governance and continuous monitoring um, having risk management for governance is something that i think we can talk about soon as well because some models need to be verbalizable some models right. need to be explainable and there should be some kind of a process that manages that putting guardrails uh, sometimes is very important because we're coming on to the really big thing here which is this is bigger than any one person or team 
small projects. There is a web of accountability. And one of the big things with DevOps is managing the handshakes between different personas involved in this uh, software engineering lifecycle. And there is a specialization, isn't there, of interest and expertise. The, the data scientist does not care about governance. And the, the ops person doesn't know anything about data science. And the data scientist might know about building models, but might not know about right. being doing the kind of um, error testing that an ML engineer might do. So with the best will in the world, even if you're a unicorn and you can do almost everything, you probably can't really. We, we need to orchestrate it. Exactly. Yeah. There, there is no, you know, one man shop to do production enterprise ML. And like you talked about many things, but you didn't even bring up, you know, the whole responsible AI, responsible ML part of it, which is, you know, say I'm, I'm building a model for a financial institution. How do I guarantee that model is not, you know, discriminating against certain user groups, like bringing responsibility into the picture and fairness is, is also super important. So yeah, yeah anybody can the, go the and governance. Like, right, right. That's, <laughs> well, that falls it's, into the, the governance bucket. Yeah. It's, it's a bigger yeah. question, right? It's, it's like, how do you, how do you verify or how do you do quality assurance? Right. on a software that you basically have no clue how it's working, right? Yep. It, especially if we go into the more deep learning areas of machine learning, you don't know. And how do you, so how does, how does something like, just something basic like unit testing, you know, continuous, continuous testing and so on, how does that work going from staging to, you know, beta to actual release? Is it just you have these bunch of test sets and if it scores well, then it gets through or how do people yeah, do Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of the most primitive way of doing it is you brute force it with your golden set of test data to validate that it works well across all of the scenarios you'd expect. But we have a bunch of tooling that we've been working on in the open source community. Some of like the interpret ML stuff where you bring in SHAP and Lime. And, you know, as you're training the model, uh, you try to figure out which features are being used, the relative importance of those features. And, you know, you can do some fuzzing and bias busting where even in the case of deep learning, you can remove just remove one signal and see how that changes the output of the model. Right. So say I just take color out of an image, for example, and see how that changes what the what the model creates. Yeah, that that's super interesting. I'd, yeah. I'd love for us to to drill into this a, a tiny bit because yeah. there are so many different tests in the life cycle of productionizing right. these models. Now, on interpretability, Yannick famously said a few weeks ago that he thought it was like reading tea leaves. I'm fascinated by, uh, for example, I, I interviewed Marco Ribirio, who created Lime yeah. on, on my YouTube channel. And the idea is that you come up with semantically relevant perturbations and then you build a linear model and you figure out which of those perturbations flips the, the switch on a classifier. But the problem is many of these methods are open to interpretation. And especially on unstructured models, if you're using these methods on language and vision models, right. they, they require another model just to classify whether or not they, they do what you want. I've been developing this idea that I think interpretability methods are useful in the interactive phase but yep. not necessarily in the non-interactive phase. Uh, so you can have a blended approach. And this is why I think we need to have some kind of model risk management process, which will take into account the unique circumstances of every single model. T to give you an example, 
Yeah. In banking, when they do credit decisions, if you apply for a credit card, they won't use a model. They'll use an expert system. And the reason is it needs to be explainable, but not in the sense that you would think. It, you need to be able to verbalize why it's doing what it's doing. Right. So they use an expert system and they say, uh, what's your net credit balance and how many defaults have you had in the last 12 months? And it's code. It's an expert system. So no machine learning model is explainable. It's no. not verbalizable. It, you, it, you can explain the what, but you can't explain the how. So surely then there are there are certain cases where you need to have an expert system. And then there are some cases that have less severity where you would use explainability. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, training time, fairness analysis, you know, bias busting, that that's where the tools that we have right now are most useful. Unfortunately, a lot of times when the model is actually running in production, it's it's more of a reactive signal where it's you know either reported or a labeler comes in and says like no this is wrong and then you have to feed that signal back into the model training process it's like oh you know this this signal is being weighted incorrectly or this signal just needs to be dropped completely from the training process so that's uh, getting to that degree of maturity that requires a lot of muscle and we're still you know just starting to to turn the wheel on that one and that's that's also why for a lot of, like many of these highly regulated institutions have been very slow to adopt machine learning and in particular deep learning just because if you can't explain it no regulator is going to approve you know making potentially life or death decisions with a black box well could could we yeah. riff on that just for a minute yeah we we don't require humans to um, explain how they know things we can't verbalize how we know things an airplane pilot cannot tell you how he flying how he flies the plane what right. we do is we do testing and human intelligence has much broader generalization so less testing yeah. is needed we can assume with less testing that the pilot would be able to fly in more situations Deep learning is a bit like a hash table. Given a sufficiently dense right. sampling of the input space, there is some interpolation. And, and given sufficient testing, we would be able to infer that the model would run in production as expected. So surely, given the correct amount of testing, we, we could rely on deep learning models. Yes, assuming that the case is something the model had seen before. <laughs> That, that's the that's the key thing, right? Right. But I, I love this methodology that Marco Ribeiro came up yeah. with around doing error testing in models. So he he said things like Lime and Shap are, are great for the the interactive phase, right. but in the non-interactive phase, we need to be building expert systems to test the models. They need to be able to run as code. And the kind of thing he came up with was if it was an unstructured problem, being able to turn it into a structured kind of like a unit right. test. And he had this uh, this um, concept of semantically equivalent adversarial examples. So, for example, you could have a rule which would turn what followed by a noun into which followed by a noun. And then you would see in your test set, did it flip the switch on more than 4% of the examples? Or right. in the fairness example, you could do data grouping and you could say, well, split it into men and women. And is the accuracy higher on men than women? In which case, let's not put this into production. So what we're doing is we're coming up with expert systems right. to determine whether or not. So I suppose verbalizable tests to determine whether or not something does or doesn't go into production. So we're taking the magic out of the process. 
And I think the the trick to doing that well and effectively is having a good semantic understanding of data in the first place. So one big gap I've seen from lots of lots of companies, and we even have this problem, you know, at, in Microsoft in some places, is like we just don't have enough labeled data or enough knowledge of what we're working on to be able to solve that. Because you know, for for adversarial testing, your basic example is like, okay, so say I'm looking at dogs and cats, right, and I'm building a, a dog or cat classifier. But like, let me throw in, you know, a baby now and just see what happens there. Like you can throw something totally out of the blue and see what the behavior looks like when it's never seen it before. Or you could just start flipping certain signals around. Like say for my, my, you know, my dog sample, it was all golden retrievers. Right. And then my cat sample was all black cats. Now, if I feed in a gold colored cat, which way is it going to go in the classification? So it's like, how do you, the semantic understanding of data is, is super important. And I think that is where we're going to see the most development going forward, especially as we get more advanced on the simulation side, right? So when you can use simulators to generate these data sets that allow us to test, and the simulator can even apply labels to those generated test sets that you can then use for a variety of different applications. So that's, I think, yeah, the, the growth of the data state to include you know, test data for ML is going to be a very cool space to watch. So do you see data augmentation playing a huge role in that? Like I've seen with like the dermatology GAN paper, how they use a pix to pix image to image translation network so they can have all the different like skin colors, lighting conditions. Right. So do you think like data augmentation is going to be a huge workhorse and kind of like balancing out the data set and then sort of doing this kind of generalization? I think that's going to be probably the biggest compute spinner in the space going forward to, to use, you know, in, in Azure, we often talk about like, okay, you know, this, this problem we're working on, how much compute do we need to solve it? But I think that gen yeah, generating data, pulling out semantic properties of data and extracting the layers of data so that you can look at like, you know, layers of something as a feature store, like that's going to be a very cool problem space to, for us to really, really hammer on. So it, Oh, sorry. Is is most of this like kind of added distribution detection? Is most of this still kind of manually encoded? Like with the DermGAN example, we're manually saying like lighting and skin color and the size right. of the skin is the key thing. Do you see like automated added distribution kind of generalization metrics being useful in the near future? Near future is tough to say. It's going to depend on on the company. Like for for example, I would imagine that someone like Facebook is looking very closely into how to do this at scale. And you know, we could see that making its way into PyTorch, for example, as a as a toolkit to help with this type of problem. But I think that for you know for now we've seen a lot of ML work on the tabular side and we're just scratching the surface when it comes to whether it's text for NLP or images or audio or you know video data, which is kind of the the synthesis of all of these put together right and you know since we're since we're on a call now like the problem of how do you do noise suppression effectively when you're doing remote calls is a very fun ml problem where you can think about how do you pull out you know all the layers of an audio stream coming in and figure out which ones are and aren't relevant in this context like that's that's a really cool problem that i'm i'm excited by some of the work we're doing uh, inside microsoft and the, the work that's going on externally in that space 
in, in terms of compute, how I don't know if you've if you've been at your current position for super long, but how has how has deep learning changed the game of this entire let's oh. sell ML products and so on? It's uh, GPUs everywhere, right? Yeah. So I, I mean the the problem with deep learning I've seen is a lot of times data scientists like to try out the newest trendiest thing and deep learning is overkill for a lot of these problems. Like if I'm building an anomaly detector on you know, tabular data, a simple like regression or a simple scikit-learn like classical ML model or an ensemble of those will probably solve me this faster and cheaper than a deep learning model will. That's the the biggest problem is it's 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 being used as too big of a hammer to solve a lot of these issues. But in terms of like the the usage on the machine learning side, we're definitely at, you know, well over half of our machine learning jobs are using deep learning today. Do you think it's yeah. different because at a, at a company like Microsoft's, you have access to these incredible data sets, you have access to all of this compute, so it seems more appropriate. I would like to play devil's advocate to what you yeah. just said before because I, I am a bit of a deep learning zealot and I am of the opinion that you can apply it to almost anything. And to a certain extent, it's because of the compositionality of deep learning. Yeah. It's like a, it's a unifying computational paradigm which means you can use the same set of ideas and tools to solve any problem and you can compose together models a bit like lego bricks and you can use some pre-trained ones and you can use some stuff from over here and stuff from over there so it's very inviting i can see why people would think yeah. i only need to have deep learning of course people talk about the no free lunch theorem which is basically saying that you do need to have specialized algorithms in, in order to, to get the best out of it. We'll probably end up there eventually as the deep learning frameworks continue to evolve. But definitely right now in terms of, you know, ease of entry, ease of getting started, like if you're learning ML, starting with classical ML before you jump off the deep end of the pool. It looks to me also like the no free lunch thing is still like very yeah. much at play. You could imagine network architecture search, data augmentation, hyperparameters, learning rate tuning. You could easily have a 5% difference in tuning the deep learning model. So I think it's still that automated hyperparameter search still makes it the no free lunch theorem, even with deep learning. Right. It's also interesting to talk about where you want to use a deep learning model. Is the deep learning model your end game or is the deep learning model, for example, just being used as a featureizer? We've seen that be on the automated machine learning side. A nice way to ease customers into deep learning is throwing in like BERT, BERT encoders as things that we can run on, on text data. But I think the key is going to be not exposing the inner workings of all of the derivatives inside of the deep learning framework to people trying to train models right away. It needs to be explainable, understandable, stuff like that. You're touching on something interesting, though, which yeah. is one of the reasons why we've struggled to have an ML DevOps framework for years is every single ML DevOps project is different. Uh, yep. The compute is heterogeneous. You might have distributed inferencing. You might be doing data engineering, effectively using uh, deep learning models. Right. The the permutations of, of these architectures is, is mind-blowingly large. 
so I'm interested to know how you get a handle on this, really, because one of the things that excites me is I genuinely want to have a way of um, templatizing and scaffolding this. I want someone in the business to say, I want to create a data science lab and I want to have this. I want to have this. It's an unstructured problem. Here's my analytical data store. I want to do this engineering. I want to use this pre-baked model that someone else has done. I want to have this productionization target. And then right. it will just create it for me. And then I, I just check some code in or I just create my Azure ML pipeline and it will, it will just do it. How far away are we from that? We're getting to a better spot for that. We're starting to... Uh, arrive at the point now and you're seeing you know technologies emerge in the wild whether it's kubeflow mlflow whatever where the concept of machine learning pipelines and being able to define you know strongly typed inputs and outputs to steps in the pipeline and having the ability to move those inputs and outputs from one compute fabric to another like that's that's getting more more and more fluid over time because you know a Pretty common scenario is you'll see data preparation is done on Spark, right? And then you'll want to use, you know, GPUs to actually go and train the model and then maybe CPUs to evaluate or compare the two, the two deltas. Like that's a pretty common scenario we hear pop up. And so that getting to a clean interoperable format between different steps in the ML pipeline is, is super important. And that, you know, when it comes to that, so for example, like, do we want to go all in on Parquet or do we think that there is a different standard we should be looking at for how to federate data across these computes? Uh, then there's also the question of, you know, data flows. So how do I design a, a, to look at Apache Beam as an example, right? Like, how do I define a data flow that can run locally, but can also scale up to, to, to massive scale as I go beyond like, okay, I think this model is good against this, you know, 0.1% of my data, but now let me try against the full thing and see what I get. So it's, it's heterogeneous compute and it's how do you scale what was an interactive experiment to run on your full data corpus without shooting yourself in the foot. And, you know, for, for, that's where it comes into for each of the compute targets that you're running on, being able to closely monitor and analyze, like, are they using resources effectively? You know, like, is how much of the time on the GPU is being wasted right now because this operation isn't taking advantage of it? Like, this is all of the fine tuning that goes into proper ML engineering and setting up like real end to end ML pipelines. I, I just want to say, as a researcher, Every yeah. single attempt at scaffolding or whatnot has failed. Every time yeah. there's a framework that's like, oh, just plug in your data here and your model here and shwoobity whoop. And I'm like, yeah, but now I want to multiply each data point by two at this step or pull and, in the gradient from, right. from this point, right? It like every, every single time it costs me more to learn the intrinsics of the model because I want to do something that the model, that the framework designer hasn't, you know, thought of. Uh, so right. I, I need to like, okay, where, what, what do I need to subclass right now? It, it's just, it's just kind of <laughs> painful every right. time. It, it's it basically just seems, like if, yeah, it moves if, too fast, right? <laughs> if you're outside the scope of the operators in your framework, then you're kind of, yes. you know, largely stuck. And that's where I actually think Docker is particularly important and useful for machine learning because with Docker and containers, you can actually design a heterogeneous compute pipeline where 
you know, sure, all of the operators in your framework can run together in memory, whatever. But say I say I want to mix like TensorFlow and PyTorch together, right? Like they have some fundamental incompatibility. So how do I build that bridge? Well, spin up two containers, just pass the pass the output in an in interoperable format, whether you put it in, you know, a shared memory bus or you flush it to the disk, whatever. But I think combining containers with containers running on heterogeneous compute with an orchestrator that can handle that is how you solve this for real. Uh, I don't think there's ever going to be like an Uber framework that has every operator a data scientist would ever want to use. It's just not realistic. Another trade-off is yeah. the the dichotomy between having control and governance and having freedom and this is part of what we're getting to right. with this cultural dichotomy between science and engineering. When I was at Microsoft, I was surrounded by incredibly gifted and bright people who were multidisciplinary. They they were data scientists, but they were also brilliant software engineers. So right. I would be forgiven for having the the misconception that we should conflate science and engineering. And my strategy on several ML DevOps projects was to encourage the data scientists to be code first, yep. to use IDEs, to use software engineering tools like Git and CICD and so on, to participate in, in the full life cycle of, of, of the engineering project. And I had some resistance at the time because people were saying, well, these data scientists, they, they might be physicists or something. They, they might not know anything about software engineering. They, yeah. uh, but I was making the argument that, well, it shouldn't be any different, right? Because even if you're, if you're designing a computer science algorithm, you go to a, a coding interview at Google, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're whiteboarding it and you're right. verbalizing it. And why is data science any different? Because the, the big thing they resist is any attempt to control the way they work, especially in a scrum methodology, because they see it as a kind of truncation or censorship of, of their fluid process of thinking and so on. And I used to be vehemently against that. But now now I kind of I understand it. I, 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 yeah. They are a different breed of human being. <laughs> I, I had the same uh, problem as you when I first started on this too. I'm like, wait, they don't understand Git, but it's so easy. Like what's going on here? But I think what it, it finally struck me after spending, you know, three or four weeks with just like embedded with a team of data scientists and looking at how they work. I mean, seriously, like it's, it's so iterative and so much of just trying different things and seeing what sticks. It's not like, here's this task, go solve it. Like go implement this class. Like that's, it's, it's experimental. And so the workflow for interactive experimentation is very, very different than the software engineering workflow. Yeah, that's so yeah. true. But I suppose you could call it a hypothesis-driven development, and it, it's a it's a different right, way of thinking right. about it. The, the curves are different because even in software engineering, there's the famous coastline of Great Britain problem. So that the coastline has this fractal uh, property. So every time you zoom in, there's more detail. So you tend to um, underestimate the duration of every software yeah. project by a factor of three. And I think for data science projects, it's more like a factor of ten. I would it's say because, higher, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, even higher. And it's because if you ask ten different data scientists how to solve a problem they'll give you 10 different answers right and just the the curves are different if you look at it as a software engineering project that the, the curves are different it's much harder to predict what's going on yeah i think you have to look at it as a research project and i think for most organizations you really have to have a separation between your data scientists and your ml engineers like that's the the other big miss we've seen is most organizations don't actually have ml engineers they have data scientists and software engineers who can't talk to each other. And that's why they get stuck. 
So, you know, we've, we, we've talked to a bunch of customers now and you know, even helped some of them kind of write JDs to pull ML engineers into their organizations. But really what you, what you want in that use case is you want, you know, your, your AI developer. So you want a software engineer who understands DevOps and understands enough about the ML problem that they can take what the data scientist built and operationalize it, right? It's, it's like a computer scientist versus a software engineer. It's the same thing. Because I, I wanted yeah. you to spend more time talking about what the ML engineer does, because I think this yeah. is the role that if you look in a lot of industry at the moment, they don't have the notion of an ML engineer. Sometimes if you look at some of the vendors providing machine learning platforms, that they also remove the notion of a machine learning engineer. Whereas I think it, it, if you if you think of a software engineering project, it, it's something which accrues technical debt. In fact, we're, we're going to talk about this paper called Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt. That's got some super interesting bits in it. Well, what I would like to do quickly, though, is, is share my screen. And you've got this wonderful deck where you talk about sure. a maturity model uh, for machine learning. So let's just do that. Now, this is wonderful. This is a set of slides that came from Jordan. And I think this this beautifully articulates a maturity model from, for ML ops. And the reason I think this is useful is I think we, we run the risk of intellectualizing this process. When we start talking about ML ops, we take it to the nth degree. We start talking about sophisticated risk governance procedures. We start talking about AI ethics and, and legals and automated retraining and things like uh, canary deployments and zero downtime rollbacks and so on. What's so good about this is you can put a mark in the ground and, and you can say, well, I want to have a certain level of maturity for this particular project. So level one is no ML ops. This is how we started. This is when a data scientist will look at the data catalog, get some data from an analytical data store, select an algorithm. But what happens next? This is the key problem with ML ops. It's the myopia of the data scientist. It's, it's where does the model go after it's been created? So the first thing that we do here is, is we create reproducibility by automating what the data scientists have done. And, and this is super interesting because this slide solves the problem of what we were talking about before, because we were saying that we want data scientists to be like software right. engineers. And rather than trying to force them to use reproducible software engineering tools like Git and VS Code, What's beautiful about this is, is Azure ML has this concept of a pipeline and it's like a workflow engine and, and that's how we get the reproducibility because the pipeline will record the lineage to the data and the hyperparameters and the code and so on. So the data scientists from their Jupyter notebook can create this pipeline interactively and then it becomes a non-interactive process later on. So I think this is the key thing that solves that problem. Right. And the cool thing about that too is that yeah, you know, the whole machine learning pipeline product was a, a grassroots in-house effort at Microsoft, which was started to solve a very real problem, which is you had data scientists that were building models on their laptops and they wanted to be able to run the training process somewhere else. So it's like, how do I have, you know, I have this code here. How do I run it somewhere else? How does anybody else run it? And how do I put it into a pipeline without requiring them to learn? Like, you know, DevOps wasn't even really a thing when they first started. So they... They built the tool to solve the problem. Of course, they originally built it, you know, back before Python for data science was a thing. So a lot of it was just C++ being stitched together. But then we took that internal core and kernel and baked it into Azure ML. And, you know, going forward, we're also trying to look and see how we can take that, that same process flow and logic and bring it to the open source community so that we have, you know, an, an open standard for machine learning pipelines. The meaning is just that if I have done something once, it kind of records it and it's able to 
run it again or is it more of a is it more of a if new data comes in i can run the same pipeline find to find a new model us data scientists won't ever give that up we, you can't <laughs> you can't replace us with a with a pipeline Every model I, uh, needs needs its own care. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I, I think from from um, a legal point of view, more than anything else, it's a you need to have reproducibility. You, you need to be able to lock down how was this model created. I think that's the first thing. And and the second right. thing is in these retraining workflows, we want to be able to recreate the model again in the future without the data scientists right. I think interactively it's, creating it. Exactly. It's reproducibility. It's also composability, though. So you know, the, the next step, and I think Tim will, will get to this in a subsequent slide, but is, okay, right. So I have, I, have, I have a reproducible model. Now the ML engineer needs to be able to take that model, package it, certify it, and then release it to yeah, somewhere, right? So that could be it's deployed out and running in a container on Kubernetes. It could be it's inside of a SQL database and is used as part of a, you know, a relational query there. It could be, it's, you know, deployed out to your phone and it's used, it's being used for augmented reality or it's being used for, you know, background noise suppression when you're talking to somebody. So that's, that, that's the, the cool spaces when you bring in, Hey, I have the model registry. I have the pipeline that trained the model. I know all the dependencies. I can get it out and then once it's running now, okay, cool. I've, you know, trained a model to solve this one very specific problem. How do I make it easier to not reinvent the wheel over and over and over again? It's like any, any company with more than one data scientist runs into the same issue where it's like, I know, I know I have all these featureizers somewhere in my company, but I don't know where they are. And I don't know which ones will work with, you know, with what I'm trying to, with the problem I'm trying to solve. So that's one of the big uh, areas that we're investing in is, you know, how do you define an open format for these reusable modules that you can stitch together where the inputs are typed such that I know what types of data this model will work or this yeah, module will work against. I know what outputs it produces and then how do I go and stitch together this graph and then how do I let somebody else fork the graph, collaborate on the graph with me and even just take that whole graph and use it as a as a module somewhere else. So the the pattern we see in you know in in being an office and all these teams doing real production ML at scale is they have these huge graphs that are not the work of one data scientist. It's whole teams who have built featureizers built, you know, modeling techniques, built parameter tuning optimizations, and they're, they're all stitched together. And like, that's, that's how you actually get the ML lifecycle started at scale. I'm going to go to the, okay. uh, the high interest credit card debt yeah. paper now. And one of them is correction cascade. So there are often situations in which a model A for right. problem uh, A exists, but a solution for a slightly different problem A prime is required. In this case, it's tempting to learn from model A prime A that takes A as an input and learns a small correction. So you can see here that when you start to develop this web of interdependencies between models, just to develop this a bit, I, I, I want you to articulate your vision for the company-wide I think of every single machine learning project as being independent in, in some sense. I, I think of it as a software project. It has an owner. It has an accountable, um, let's say, a product owner. And, and legally, maybe that's where the accountability lies. And 
at the company level, maybe there's a model catalog. Maybe there's a way of composing and publishing and discovering these models together. I'm not quite sure how that works. But do you run the risk of if you publish something, who's responsible for it? And do you have this cascade problem? Right. I think it's the, it's the same problem you see in software engineering, right? So we had this this issue when, you know, we called it the one ES effort inside of Microsoft to get everybody onto the same tools and systems and promote a culture of internal open source. And it's like, okay, well, internal open source is great, but you have to introduce the concept of, you know, accountability and ownership. And the life cycle means you need to be able to archive and deprecate things or indicate, should you be building on top of this or not? So it's a question of, I have my experiment. I want to collaborate. I want to share. I want to uh, then, so say I've built a featureizer. I use it for my tiny thing, right? But now a huge other internal team comes and takes a dependency on it. Like, how do you set up shared accountability responsibility for for these modules that you're stitching together to, to, to create the, you know, the pipelines of the ML lifecycle? And that's where starting to talk about like, oh, Git gets very interesting, right? So how do you smoothly bring in Git or version control with the concepts of, you know, tagging and labeling and ownership information and even policies, right? I have these modules I've created. Do I allow people to take dependencies on any version of them or like only the version in master or only the version that's been tagged because it's been ran through these 50 different validation data sets to make sure it works? That's where we're trying to get to is, you know, directionally, we introduce shareable modules, make it easy to stitch them into pipelines and then introduce the, the life cycle on top of the shareable modules in a seamless way so that you can go from interactive in a notebook, in ID, whatever, to in a pipeline, to in a shared pipeline. And that's MLOps, like full stop. <laughs> so the envisioning yeah. might be something like doc Docker registries for models or for featureizers for parts of pipelines. Exactly. There's, you know, there's, there's Docker registries to capture the dependencies. There's package feeds that have the different libraries that you might want to pull in. Uh, there's, you know, jobs that are predefined that says, hey, you know, run this command in this container with this parameterized data. Like that's the... The layering that we're trying to go for uh, to make sure that, again, it's a composable, componentizable stack that we expose. So how do you think about like when there's a merge conflict in traditional software engineering, yeah. it's usually we just have written different functions and then bang, we just put them together. It's easy like that. But if Tim forks my model and then Yannick forks the model, they each train it on a different subset of data. How do you merge the networks now? It's an excellent question. So to be able to merge models together. So say I have original pipeline and then pipeline trained on Tim's data set A, pipeline trained on uh, Yonix data set B. Do you take the same pipeline and run it on both of the data sets together? Like does the feature space overlap between the two? Or do you need to actually run both pipelines in parallel and then build some sort of ensembling technique where you'll, you know, run a loop through both of the models and apply some pre or post processing to it. And on ensembling is also a, a you know a, a big thing that we do internally, and we're just starting to scratch the surface on on model ensembling because there's 
sure you could just merge the neural nets together you can f try to fold the layers together but i think ensembling gives you a more sort of flexible way of doing that because if you think about you know the way the human brain works for example it's not just like one neural net it's like every single synapse in your brain is a different neural net and it, it ensembles all of those together in its own metagraph and then we'll spit out a, a result just to use the you know your brain is a computer analogy there the solution that seems obvious to me for this problem would be like this knowledge distillation technique where yeah. Tim's forked model is going to label the data and then Yannick's forked model is going to label the data and I'm going to train on these two label distributions now. Is that something that like is being thought of as this technique for merging or because ensembling to me sounds like, well, now you have this collection of models, each of each of them being like, you know, hundreds of megabytes of parameters at mm -hmm. least, right? So do you see knowledge distillation as being like a useful merge tool for these networks? I think we'll get there over time. I, th I just think this the space isn't quite advanced enough yet to do it. But ensembling is a cheap way to take models that were trained on different data sets and stitch them together. Well, it's it's cheap from a training point of view, more expensive from an inference point of view. And so that's where, you know, we're doing a lot of work on the Onyx side with like the open neural net exchange to figure out how do you quantize models and shrink them down so that they can give you good performance on the inference side. Uh, and that, that again, that space is still very new because the frameworks are all evolving, but it's been essential for us to be able to actually use, you know, models in real time, like the grammar models in office, because, you know, you can't spend five seconds waiting for like suggestions for sentences to come in. That's just not realistic. There's also the, the interesting, you know, when it comes to A-B testing of models. So I have a model running on the client. It's very expensive to deploy a model down to the client. It's much cheaper to, you know, run one in the cloud. So how do you do an A-B test with a model running in two different places? So it's kind of like your cloud edge champion challenger ad hoc analysis. And so, you know, one approach we've seen is you'll have, you know, different rings you roll the model out to you can start by running the model in you know offline mode or in shadow mode for some time where you don't block on it the model can be even you know denser or more expensive to train but you just see sort of what the fidelity loss looks like with different techniques of quantizing the model and that helps you with being able to, to you know use it in production it's also the question of what you're using the models for like are they running once a month okay, like, uh, who, who cares? Like, you know, hyper-optimizing the latency there is not a big deal. But if they're running at 5,000 requests a second, it's a very, very different problem to go and solve for. You've, you've mentioned a bunch of times right now these, these ideas of strongly typed inputs and outputs to these models. And so even if I, like, okay, let's say we, we, t we compare Python to C++ or something, where in, in C++ I have my strong types and I know everything's yeah. going to fit together. But if I look in terms of machine learning, if I do, the, what's the type of this thing? It's just going to be tensor, right? Like that, right. that tells me nothing at all when, <laughs> when like my, no IDE can help me there. And even, even if you think ahead and say, ah, maybe we can, you know, the compiler could track the shapes of the tensors, right? And then it's like, okay, tensor of five by 200 times, like sometimes... I'll just put like some weird number as the number of dimensions or hidden layers. Yeah. So when it shows up in a tensor, like I know, ah, that's, you know, <laughs> that's this that's dimension. That's your indicator. It's like, aha, where, yes. Where, 
you know, what I would want from a typed input would be something like, this thing is an image that has been normalized right. using this technique, ran through this sort of pre-processing, right? That, that being the entire type of the data point. So how do you... How do you come to that place? So we're we're place? very, very early here right now. One of the things that we're trying to do is, you know, for the major types of assets in the system. So for example, like this is a machine learning model and, you know, a model has a, a load, has an init function, a predict function on top of it. Here's some data that goes along with it. Here is the environment required to run it. So there's a question of, okay, the model is what methods does the model expose? The next level, the next sort of step there is what is the schema to the input to the model, right? So the the schema could be like, okay, this is just you know a pandas data frame with these columns inside of it, right? And so how do you take the schema of a data set flowing in from pandas, whether it's coming from you know JSON, gRPC, whatever the protocol happens to be, but how do you take that and translate it into something that's compatible with like the tensors on, on the front end there? And that's, we're just scratching the surface for now. For now, what we have is we have, I can tell you, you know, the schema of the input function to this module in the pipeline and what that looks like from, okay, it's a dictionary of, you know, I expect these names to come in, but we're definitely not at the full granularity of tensors yet. And that's that's something we've been you know, struggling with and iterating on uh, on the inference side. And so we've released a public inference schema package, but we're trying to figure out how to tie that into, for example, in you know in MLflow. MLflow has this model package format where you define like the flavor of the model, which is how to load this thing, how to run on top of it. But like, how do we introduce schema to those flavors so we can do that strong typing? And then how do we extend this beyond just models and to any component inside of the ML workflow? And that's that's the next step that we're we're working to get to right now. And we're we're having to do that because uh, we have the same problem for you know explanations, right? Like an explanation, you need to give it a model and some data as as input so it can explain the behavior there. So it's because everything is so new and nascent and there's so many different open source tools, I don't think standards have emerged just yet. But at least from you know an Azure and Microsoft point of view, we're trying all of them, figuring out which ones work best for our customers, both inside and outside the company. And our net goal is to get to a set of open interoperable standards for all of this. Like we don't, know what the shape is just yet but that is what we're aggressively pushing towards because we don't want to have data scientists be like locked into azure they should choose azure because it's the best cloud to do their ml work on on the subject of yeah. ml flow i used to use ml flow because yeah. it gave me a wonderful interactive workflow on my machine before i kind of promoted to um right. you know azure machine learning uh, but you don't need to use ml flow what what's the story there so it's an excellent question. Right now we have, you know, when it comes to, to logging things in a, in a job, right? You can either use the Azure ML SDK or you can use uh, the MLflow one. And we have, uh, you know, API parity across, across, across the two of them. 
they're both conceptually born from the same idea, which is how do you enable reproducibility, whether it's through you know, tracking the model package format or uh, the new work that we're working with them on for the model registry as well, right? So I guess we're, we're working on figuring out the, the answer there. I have my thoughts and opinions, but I'm curious what, what you guys think. Like, do you think it makes sense to push aggressively on an open interoperable format for logging and tracking? Or does it make more sense to, you know, keep, keep a proprietary one or to use the Azure machine learning one or to look at other open source tools uh, or other companies that are in this space like Comet or Weights and Biases or Neptune. Like there's so many tools in this space. Like what do you guys think? Speaking personally, interoperability and portability is not that important. Yeah. The uh, people talk about the need for cloud portability and so on. Most companies have a multi-cloud strategy and it's completely accepted that you'll you'll need to do ML things on Azure ML in a certain way and you'll need to do SageMaker's completely different. I think there is a need for global governance across the entire company for, for models, but I think that's something that's slightly different. I, I yeah. think every single project will have its own model registry. And this is what I want to get your opinion on. How does that right. translate into company-wide mm -hmm. governance? So I think and one of the things we're working on right now is, you know, between the Azure AI and Azure data organizations and looking at, you know, open source tools like Apache Atlas, how do we enable an enterprise-wide data catalog that by default includes all of the modeling work being done? So if anybody, you know, say I create a workspace, create a project, whatever, I pull in some data. Just by pulling it in, the data catalog should know or track like, okay, these different projects are now using this data. Anything I output from that data should also get tracked in the data catalog. So I think, you know, the while a model catalog is interesting, I think it's really just models are data and it's just a subtype of the problem that a data catalog is trying to solve. So, you know, from at least my preference is that we should be collaborating together and figuring out how to just make models and and even software applications that you're rolling out, like those, those should all just fall into this enterprise-wide data catalog, data governance, lifecycle experience. Could you just expand a tiny bit on yeah. that? Because models seem to be slightly less inert than data because models make decisions that have consequence. And we were talking about fairness and bias. But and I mean, it's, it's the same yeah. thing applies to data, right? People make decisions on data that has consequences. So I, I don't think they're actually that different. It's like a model is just some transformed data. You may have read a bunch of features or featureizers on it. You may have run some different modeling techniques on it, but fundamentally it's some data that you spat out and it's going to have the same problems as any other type of data you're dealing with. But is there a difference? The model is the function, not the data. You can put data through the model. Does that make a, a, a meaningful difference in your opinion? I think to uh, to an extent, the, I guess the big thing is a model is a combination of the data and the function to run on the data, right? So it's really more than a data catalog. It's a data and feature and model catalog that you can look at all of that together and then see all of the different 
jobs, whether it's just a data processing job or a model development pipeline or an inference pipeline that are using those assets. Because that's the, the whole sticking point of ML versus normal software engineering is you're introducing data. Like that's, that's where all of the complexity comes from, right? Like code, code is a commodity, data is gold. So when you, put, when you put gold in your applications, all of a sudden things start to matter a lot more. What kind of things would you record in this catalog? I'm, I'm thinking that data has very important dimensions around privacy, for example. Right. And it's not necessarily structured data. It's even harder if it's unstructured data, because how do you possibly record useful semantic information? Exactly. And so right now, the things we're looking at capturing is what is the intended use for this data? Like, what is the source of this data? What is the, the PII level of this data? We have this problem in, in, in Office when we're training models. So say I want to train a model on top of email data. Well, if I want an interactive experience, I can either use public domain email data. So like the Enron emails or you know, the Hillary Clinton email data sets, those are pretty popular ones internally there. Or there's you know semi-eyes on where... If, for example, internal Microsoft employees opt in, then I can run training jobs on top of those, or uh, I can even extract my own emails and train emails on top of those. But then it, it, as you go you know, further and further into the, the, PI level, the PII level gets higher, the question is, how do, you, how do you even do training on confidential data? And we've built a bunch of tools internally, and we're actually in the process of open sourcing those right now to enable you to, to do things like log scrubbing, where you can scrub PII out of your training jobs or enable you to do model training and a detonation chamber on top of compliant data. So I can shape my training pipeline on the public domain data, refine it further on mine, then start applying it to you know, a real enterprise data set corpus and provide the security to your larger company, customer, whatever, that the, their real data isn't leaking out because you just train on the, train on the samples or on a subset there. One extension of that is um, there are some announcements at Build last week, and, and maybe you, you can expand on these as well, but there's something called Microsoft Seal, which is this homomorphic encryption methodology for scenarios when you can kind of allow data scientists or third parties to perform ML on encrypted sensitive data. There was also something announced called White Noise, which is a new approach yeah. to differential privacy where you kind of like randomly add, add noise to certain records so you, you, you can no longer be sure that it was their contribution yeah. in the model. So Microsoft is doing some pretty cool stuff that. Definitely. We have huge investments internally, externally, and we're trying to, as much as possible, take the goodness and push it out to open source as soon as we can. Because we know from, you know, all of our customers are asking for this. And at least from my point of view, I want to make sure that we're building it in a way that customers can use it right away and not like, you know, we shouldn't lock responsible AI behind a paywall. That to me is just the wrong approach to take. So, Let's say I've hacked into your email system and I have your model copies before and after you go and train locally on Tim's emails. And I want to reconstruct Tim's emails that you've just trained on. Do you think there would be any way that I could have optimized directly to have a generative model try to produce data that causes that change? I think uh, the generative adversarial models are super interesting there. So that's another validation sweep you can do is say I have this neural net 
to run, basically run a scanner that scans through the whole neural net, tries throwing common use cases in or tries to see if it can extract anything PAI from it. So, you know, just basic example is an organizational acronym dictionary. Let's say you're training a model for a, a company talking about uh, their quarterly earnings reports. If you start to, to learn what those acronyms mean and you can reverse engineer it, then you're kind of in trouble and you're eroding customer choice on top of it. Because then, you know, anybody with access to to that model inside the company could then start running things and try to figure out like, okay, what's what's changing over time? So that that whole space is going to be very, very interesting to watch evolve on the adversarial ML, adversarial AI, especially because, you know, as as Tim alluded to, I think deep learning is becoming more and more prevalent by the day. Classic, classic ML for most customers is where they're starting, but they all want to use deep learning, but none of them can use it until we have these, these types of responsible AI tools. You think there will be like a sort of, like you have black hats right now for classic, like for servers and so on, there, there might be emerging, an emerging class of a black hat hacker for uh, for ML models like publicly publicly the, uh, exposed models, do you already see things like this? We we have teams internally that do exactly this, right? So we have mm -hmm. teams that will go and look at the models and do uh, threat modeling, threat analysis on top of them. And we have seen, you know, in the even in the external community, trying to hack into companies' machine learning platforms to figure out what they're doing, what data their models are trained on. But that's going to be the, you know, the next generation of black hats are going to be the data scientists black hats. Awesome. So, so Jordan, it's been yeah. an absolute honor to have you on the show this week. But before you go, do you, do you have any exciting announcements or any, anything else that, that you want to let our viewers know? Nothing at the moment. We're, we're cooking up a lot of really cool stuff internally, obviously. COVID has set back some of that and when it's going to be announced and rolled out. But let's let's grab some more time in a month or two and maybe we can even show you some of the cool stuff we're working on. Oh, that would be an absolute honor. Yeah. Just uh, to finish things off, if you could go back in time and give your yeah. younger self some advice, what would it be? Oof. Stop trying to talk data scientists out of using Jupyter Notebooks. Risk <laughs> collabs now. Yes. <laughs> That is wonderful. I, I should do the same thing. That's wonderful advice. Um, Jordan, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and we look forward to getting you back on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Brilliant. Thanks, thanks so much. Amazing. Okay, bye. bye. Cheers. I really hope you enjoyed the session today. Remember to like, comment and subscribe and we will see you back for another exciting episode next week.